From New York, this is Democracy Now! When I first heard the news, I thought, great, I've been canceled in Florida. I think it's wonderful, actually, that now that many of us have uh, been excluded from being taught in this AP course, it'll be a backlash. And now all of our names are out there. So the students who would not get access to us through the course can now Google us and find our work in other ways. The College Board has removed Black Lives Matter, slavery, reparations, and queer theory as required topics in the curriculum for its AP African American Studies course. Were the changes made in response to criticism from Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and other conservatives? We'll speak with two professors whose work has been removed from the new curriculum. E. Patrick Johnson and Kianga Yamada-Taylor. They both teach at Northwestern. We'll also talk to Harvard professor Khalil Gibran Mohammed. Then we'll talk to an asylum seeker here in New York who's just been evicted from a hotel where he was staying among hundreds of migrants. Now the city is moving many of them to a remote location in Brooklyn. Many of us who don't have work, it gets complicated because we don't know or don't have anywhere to go, don't have money to rent a place. Others, the majority, have been able to get work in Manhattan. Now, sadly, they have to be transferred to Brooklyn. Many are going to have to give up their jobs. Many of us lost our jobs once again. We're in the street once again, starting from scratch. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. As Pope Francis visits South Sudan today, 27 people, including five children, were killed in clashes between cattle herders and militia members Thursday. The Vatican said the Pope's visit came in the hopes of reinvigorating a troubled peace process following a decade of conflict in South Sudan since its establishment in 2011. The Pope's visit comes after he spent the week in the Democratic Republic of Congo, where more than a million worshippers attended his mass in Kinshasa. He condemned the simultaneous exploitation and neglect of the region by Western powers. The poison of greed has smeared its diamonds with blood. This is a tragedy to which the economically more advanced world often closes its eyes, ears, and mouth. Yet this country and this continent deserve to be respected and listened to. They deserve to find space and receive attention. Hands off the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Hands off Africa. Stop choking Africa. It is not a mine to be stripped or a terrain to be plundered. On Thursday, protesters gathered outside Kinshasa's Notre Dame Cathedral to denounce systemic sexual abuse in the Catholic Church. Advocates are drawing attention to the case of a 14-year-old girl who was raped by a priest in the DRC and demanding the Church apply a 2019 law enacted by the Pope to hold bishops accountable for sex abuse or for covering it up. This is Tim Law, founder of Ending Clergy Abuse. What happened after the abuse was reported to the bishop, the, the, the good sisters and priests that reported it all got fired and the order disbanded. And the girl has left the country in fear of her life. If the Pope doesn't enforce this law, uh, he's sending a message throughout all of Africa, bishops, it doesn't matter, do what you want. If he enforces this law, he sends a message that he, that he cares about the African children. 
Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky has welcomed the European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen to Kyiv for talks on Ukraine's push to join the European Union. EU officials have said Ukraine's accession to the 27-member bloc will, at a minimum, take several more years, as Ukraine needs to ensure more anti-corruption measures. At Thursday's summit, von der Leyen also said the Commission will set up a dedicated office at The Hague to prosecute war crimes committed by Russia during its war in Ukraine. Her remarks came as Russian President Vladimir Putin compared Russia's invasion of Ukraine to the Battle of Stalingrad in World War II. Putin spoke at a ceremony in Volgograd commemorating the 80th anniversary of the Red Army's victory over Nazi forces. Now, unfortunately, we see that the ideology of Nazism, in its modern form and manifestation, once again directly threatens the security of our country. Again and again, we have to repel the aggression of the collective West. It is believed possibly more than 200,000 Russian soldiers have died in Ukraine. On Capitol Hill, House Republicans have removed Minnesota Democratic Congressmember Ilhan Omar from the Foreign Affairs Committee after accusing her of anti-Semitism. Omar has been outspoken in her support of Palestinian rights, has been repeatedly accused by Republicans and some Democratic leaders for questioning U.S.-Israeli relations and criticizing the power of AIPAC and the Israeli lobby in Washington. Congressmember Omar spoke from the House floor after 218 Republicans voted to strip her committee assignments in Thursday's party-line vote. I didn't come to Congress to be silent. I came to Congress to be their voice. And my leadership and voice will not be diminished if I am not on this committee for one term. My voice will get louder and stronger, and my leadership will be celebrated around the world as it has been. Congressmember Omar came to the United States as a refugee after her family fled civil war in Somalia. She's one of the first Muslim women to serve in the House. Democrats accused Republicans of political retribution over the removal of far-right Congressmembers Marjorie Taylor Greene and Paul Gosar from their committee assignments in the last Congress due to their violent, racist rhetoric. In 2021, Congressmember Gosar became the first lawmaker to be censured in more than a decade for posting an animated video on social media where he murders Congressmember Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez and attacks President Biden. This is Congressmember Ocasio-Cortez speaking from the House floor Thursday. I had a member of the Republican caucus threaten my life, and you all and the Republican caucus rewarded him with one of the most prestigious committee assignments in this Congress. Don't tell me this is about consistency. Don't tell me that this is about an abdic a, a condemnation of anti-Semitic remarks when you have a member of the Republican caucus who, have who has talked about Jewish space lasers and an, an entire amount of tropes and also elevated her to some of the highest committee assignments in this body. This is about targeting women of color in the, in the United States of America. Don't tell me, because I didn't get a single apology Time has expired. when my life was threatened. Thank you.
Meanwhile, the House approved a bipartisan resolution Thursday to, quote, denounce the horrors of socialism. The non-binding measure passed with the support of every Republican. 109 Democrats voted yes, 86 voted no, 14 voted present. Wisconsin Democrat Mark Pocan, who voted no, said, quote, this resolution is plain ridiculous. It jointly condemns Pol Pot and Norway, he said. He accused Republicans of staging the vote to press pressure Democrats to accept cuts to Social Security and Medicare. In immigration news, nearly a thousand asylum-seeking families remain separated after their children were forcibly taken at the U.S.-Mexico border under the Trump administration's zero-tolerance policy. That's according to the Homeland Security Department, which reported on Thursday that a task force created by the Biden administration has only been able to reunite some 689 children with their parents and relatives. An estimated 5,500 migrant children were separated from their families during during Trump's time in office. Thousands have since been found and reunited with loved ones, largely due to the work of advocacy groups like the ACLU. President Biden had vowed to stop the practice and to pay reparations to the families separated by Trump, but his administration has now refused to pay restitution, while data shows Biden immigration officials have separated hundreds of families at the southern border. Members of the Congressional Black Caucus met with President Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris at the White House Thursday, a day after the funeral of Tyree Nichols. This is Nevada Democrat Stephen Horsford, chair of the Congressional Black Caucus. The death of Tyree Nichols um, is yet another example of why we do need action. Uh, but you've already led on the action that we've been able to take through executive order. Uh, we need your help. Uh, to make sure we can get the legislative actions uh, that are necessary to save lives and to make public safety the priority that it needs to be for all communities. In New Jersey, a 30-year-old councilwoman was shot dead in her car outside her home Wednesday in the town of Sayreville, New Jersey. Eunice Duomfor was elected in 2021, was remembered by a colleague as someone who, quote, wanted to make a better community for all our children, unquote. The identity of the killer, their motive unknown. She leaves behind a young daughter and her husband. A federal court has struck down a ban on gun ownership for some perpetrators of domestic violence. The ruling by the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals relies on an antiquated interpretation of gun laws and comes as the U.S. is seeing a surge of gun violence. The Gun Violence Archive says there were 52 mass shootings last month, making it the deadliest January since it started tracking such data. A 2021 study found over two-thirds of mass shootings are either domestic violence incidents or perpetrated by shooters with a history of domestic violence. The Justice Department said it plans to appeal Thursday's ruling. Meanwhile, on Capitol Hill, at least two Republican lawmakers, including embattled New York Congressmember George Santos, have been spotted wearing AR-15 pins on their lapels. The office of Florida Congressperson Anna Paulina Luna said the shocking accessory is meant to promote a gun bill, though it's unclear what that bill is. And the Biden administration's released Guantanamo Bay detainee Majid Khan after nearly 20 years in custody. In 2021, Khan became the first Guantanamo prisoner to testify in an open court about torture methods used by the CIA at its network of secret black sites, where Khan was detained from 2003 to 2006. This is Bar Azmi, legal director of the Center for Constitutional Rights, speaking to Democracy Now! then. Majid Khan, to his credit, 
uh, detailed the systematic, brutal, sadistic uh, torture of U.S. government officials, namely the CIA, uh, which for um, nearly 20 years the U.S. government has tried to keep secret. Khan's lawyer said in a statement, Guantanamo's national shame. We hope that today is another step forward towards its ultimate closure. The men languishing in Guantanamo who've been cleared for release must be transferred. Indefinite detention is anathema to a just society, they said. Majid Khan arrived in Belize on Thursday, which has agreed to permanently resettle him. His release came as the United Nations announced it's sending a human rights official to the Guantanamo military prison for the first time ever. The U.S. continues to hold 30 34 men at Guantanamo. Only 11 of them have been charged in military tribunals. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, the War and Peace Report. When we come back, College Board has removed Black Lives Matter, slavery reparations, and queer theory as required topics in the curriculum for its AP African American Studies course. We'll speak to two professors on the so-called cancel list, whose work has been removed from the new required curriculum. Stay with us. And what did you learn in school today, dear little boy of mine? What did you learn in school today, dear little boy of mine? I learned that policemen are my friends. I learned that justice never ends. I learned that murderers die for the crimes, even if we make a mistake sometimes. And that's what I learned in school today. That's what I learned in school. And what did you learn in school today, dear little boy of mine? you learn in school today, dear little boy of mine? I learned that war is not so bad. I learned about the great ones we have had. We fought in Germany and in France, and someday I might get my chance. And that's what I learned in school today. That's what I learned in school. And what did you learn in school today, dear little boy of mine? What did you learn in school today, dear little boy of mine? I learned our government. What did you learn in school today by Tom Paxton? This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We begin today's show looking at the controversy surrounding the College Board's decision to revise its curriculum for an advanced placement African American studies course. The revised curriculum removes Black Lives Matter slavery reparations and queer theory as required topics. It adds a section on black conservatism. Many prominent authors and academics have also been removed from the AP curriculum, including James Baldwin, Franz Fanon, Audre Lorde, Bell Hooks, June Jordan, Angela Davis, Alice Walker, Manning Marable, Tanahasi Coates, Michelle Alexander, Kimberly Crenshaw, Barbara Ransby, Roderick Ferguson, and two of our guests today, E. Patrick Johnson and Kianga Yamada-Taylor. The new curriculum was released Wednesday, on the first day of Black History Month. This all comes just weeks after Florida's Republican Governor Ron DeSantis threatened to ban the AP Black Studies course in Florida schools, and Florida's Education Department said the course, quote, lacks educational value. Florida had raised concern about six points in the curriculum—black queer studies, intersectionality, movement for black lives, black feminist literary thought— the reparations movement, and black struggle in the 21st century. 
While several of those topics have been removed as required parts of the new AP curriculum, the College Board maintains the final decisions to revise the curriculum were made in December before Governor DeSantis said he was banning the class. UCLA professor Robin D.G. Kelly, whose writings were also removed from the required curriculum, said this is deeper than an AP course. This is about eliminating any discussion that might be critical of the United States of America, which is a dangerous thing for democracy, he said. We're joined now by a round table of guests, two of them are professors whose work has been removed from the required curriculum. In Greenville, South Carolina, E. Patrick Johnson joins us. He's dean of the School of Communication at Northwestern University in Chicago and a pioneer in the formation of black sexuality studies as a field of scholarship. His most recent book is Honeypot, Black Southern Women Who Love Women. In Chicago, Kianga Yamada-Taylor joins us. She's professor of African-American studies at Northwestern University as well, a contributing writer at The New Yorker magazine and editor of the book How We Get Free, Black Feminism and the Combahee River Collective. And Khalil Gibran Muhammad is with us, professor of history, race and public policy at the Harvard Kennedy School, author of The Condemnation of Blackness, Race, Crime and the Making of Modern Urban America. We welcome you all to Democracy Now! And we're going to begin um, in South Carolina with Dean E. Patrick Johnson. You're one of the band. Um, can you <laughs> respond to—this is a whole controversy. The College Board attacked The New York Times for saying that um, they removed these certain sections from the required AP course in response to Governor DeSantis. Um, they're not— disputing the College Board that they removed these sections, but they're saying they did it before DeSantis made his final uh, comments on this issue. What is known is that the College Board made their—revealed uh, the curriculum on the first day of Black History Month. Talk about what's happening here. Well, there's so much to cover. You know, in response to the the removal of my name, I— it's a it's a great list to be on because of the wonderful thinkers that are included. And I also thought it was ironic that the fact that we've been removed means actually, uh, in some ways, more students will have access because now people are doing searches uh, for our work. Um, so that's the irony in all of this. I can't speak to the, the college board's uh, motivations or uh, their their process, but what I can say is Everyone uh, is clear that African-American history is being being used as a political pawn uh, for uh, the the governor's own uh, ascension, uh, his own aspirations to become president. This is a movement to gin up his uh, supporters uh, and the the conservative movement. Um, And most of us, you know, realize this. And so I'm I'm not uh surprised by any of this. Uh but it just means that we have to to be steadfast. We have to keep at it um and make sure that uh the students uh, who would have otherwise been able to to access our work can still access it in many other ways. I wanted to turn to Republican Governor Ron DeSantis in Florida, telling reporters why he opposed the original AP African American Studies course. This course 
on black history, what are one of, what's one of the lessons about? Queer theory. Now, who would say that an important part of black history is queer theory? That is somebody pushing an agenda on our kids. And so when you look to see they have stuff about intersectionality, abolishing prisons, that's a political agenda. So, uh, Dean Patrick Johnson, your response? Um. Ron DeSantis has no standing about what should and should not be a part of African-American history. He's not a scholar of African-American history, and he himself is not African-American. So why should he uh, have any role in what should and should not be included? And anything that, uh, if anything lacks, you know, educational value, it's the governor. I want to turn to your student, um, Kianga Yamada-Taylor, as a graduate student, now also a professor, um, a professor now at uh, Northwestern University of African American Studies, one of the canceled as well. Professor um, Kianga Yamada-Taylor, your response to this controversy and what students will learn all over this country, it's not just limited to Florida. There are laws being passed or being weighed in many states around the country. Yeah, thanks, Amy. Um, I want to talk about that, but I want to begin with your question about the the College Board. and, and their motivations, because I think it is believable that uh, they had a piloted um, course that uh, was being circulated among many schools, dozens of schools. I think it's 60 schools uh, around the country. Um, I, it's totally believable that uh, through that process, they decided that um, things needed to be removed uh, from the course, that it needed to be revised in some way, that it needed to be uh, tightened up. That is the purpose of having a pilot in the first place. Um, But what is not believable is that the political atmosphere uh, had no bearing on their decisions about what to revise and the ways in which uh, they revised it. Um, And I say that because Part of the this has been the development of this course uh, has been in process for a decade. However, uh, Trevor Packer, who is the uh, head of AP within the College Board, um, told Time magazine last fall that the events surrounding the murder of George Floyd uh, reinvigorated his desire uh, to get this course uh, accomplished. And so it is hard to believe that given the circumstances around George Floyd and the historic uh, demonstrations that uh, came in the wake of that murder, um, the decision to excise any reference to contemporary black America, to the Black Lives Matter movement, um, is just uh, coincidence, is unbelievable. Um, And so the The changes to the curriculum did not have to be uh, directly related to the words of Ron DeSantis. The political writing um, has been on the wall, uh, both in terms of the uh, unfounded attacks on critical race theory, uh, the the, uh, derision of the 1619 Project, uh, 
which is where much of this uh, began, the, the, the 1619 project being banned in states across the country, the mere mention of critical race theory being banned uh, in states uh, uh, across the country. Um, and so at the college board, you only needed to be a thinking person uh, to realize that if we don't change significant parts of this uh, curriculum um, and weed out the radical writers, um, then, you know, we are probably asking uh, for, uh, for, for trouble. So their explanation that uh, this is just part of the process and uh, it has nothing to do with the political um, environment uh, is, is, is completely unbelievable. Um, let me ask you to respond to David Coleman, the CEO of the College Board, defending their decision on CBS. We at the College Board don't really look to the statements of politicians, but we do look to the record of history. So when we revised the course, there were only two things we went to. We went to what Brandy described, which is feedback from teachers and students, as well as 300 professors who have been involved in building the course. And we went back to principals that have guided AP for a long time and served us well. Kianga, you might tell her your response. Again, I do think that they were engaged in a, a, a process that went from a piloted uh, course uh, to a revised course. Um, but even looking at, at history, some of this is completely nonsensical. Uh, the fact that in the, the unit on um, civil rights and black power, uh, that they have reduced the black power movement um, to the life of, of Malcolm X, who was killed in 1965, before really the, the heyday of the black insurgency in the late 1960s took place. Um, and why is that important? Uh, because from 1963, really through 1968, in Elizabeth Hinton's book called America on Fire, which shows an even longer history of black rebellion and uprising uh, in the United States, is the context within which black studies was born. Black studies as, uh, as, a, uh, as an academic field, as a discipline, emerges out of the rebellions of the, of the 1960s. It is black students demanding that the, their lives, that their history, that a curriculum be developed around the uh, experiences of black people, around an understanding of racism in the United States, around an understanding of the kind of core hypocrisy of the United States, proclaiming itself to be a just democracy while treating black people, one, as slaves and then as second-class citizens. This is completely removed from the, the, the curriculum. So we don't even understand or know where the discipline of black studies comes from. And so that is also uh, uh, a, political, uh, a political choice. And so I think that um, it's, it's just wrong to say uh, that politics had nothing uh, to do with it, when it's so evident based on the choices of what uh, remained and what was removed, uh, is so evidently um, shaped by the political atmosphere that we're in today. Um, I wanted to ask you about the Combahee River Collective, which remains in the curriculum, a manifesto of the black feminist group. Uh, you edited How We Get Free, Black Feminism and the Combahee River Collective. Explain what it is and how it fits into this black studies course. The Combahee River uh, Collective itself was an organization of uh, black feminists, black lesbians that formed— um, in the 1970s, and uh, three of the leading members of that organization um, put 
put together, wrote a, a manifesto, essentially, um, proclaiming uh, the meaning of, of black feminism for them, uh, which was really about looking at the ways that the experiences of black women um, had been uh, uh, minimized or marginalized uh, over the course of the, the radicalization uh, of the 1960s, which is to say that uh, for many, black politics was seen as a uh, male venture, as a, a set of politics and organizing that were oriented around the demands of black men. Um, and the, the emergent feminist movement was seen to have been dominated by white women. Uh, and so the Combahee River uh, Collective emerges to talk about uh, uh, really what are the experiences um, of black women. And they write this manifesto. Um, as a way to articulate the need for what they describe uh, as identity politics and not the, the, the kind of uh, identity politics that is, is uh, talked about today that is criticized uh, by the right and by liberals uh, uh, today as an exclusionary venture, but really as a way for uh, people who are oppressed and marginalized uh, to, uh, to have a way to talk about their own experiences, to build a political movement um, around what they need. Uh, because as Barbara Smith, one of the authors of the, the uh, statement said, if we can't fight for ourselves, then why would we expect anyone else to fight for us? In fact, we know no one else uh, will fight for us. So it's a very um, uh, critical and important statement uh, in uh, the canon um, of black feminist studies, but also in uh, the, the, the canon of, of black radicalism. I wanted to bring in um, Khalil Gibran Muhammad. Um, I wanted to start, though, with Fox News' Jesse Waters, um, who uh, said this on Fox News, criticizing the AP African American Studies course. It's a very good course. Mm -hmm. Three quarters of it is very rigorous and very good. And this is very high level stuff. Mm -hmm. And then you get to about 1960 in here and it's all activism. Mm -hmm. It's all ideology. It's no history. A good course. A chunk of this is really good stuff. And then it goes into white supremacy, patriarchy, abolish the prisons, overthrow capitalism, queer theory, intersectionality. And you're like, whoa, we were going pretty good here. And then, boom, it hits you with all that stuff. And the lower third of this Fox News is war on woke, is what it says. Khalil Gibran Muhammad is professor of history, race and public policy at Harvard Kennedy School. Your response? Well, Here's the thing. Uh, we live in a country where the question of how we ought to make use of our resources, what kind of political structure we should have in order to decide on leadership are all political questions. And we've been fighting a question about how to distribute those resources since the very beginning, since 1619 in the debate between indentured servitude and chattel slavery. So when uh, Fox News suggests that activism to advance a position of a more equitable, a more egalitarian economy, call it socialism if you'd like, or activism in pursuit of an actual multiracial democracy, call that woke if you like, um, is just another way of articulating the same thing the right does, which is to say that we should only be teaching capitalism, we should only be teaching individual freedom. It's absurd, but it's good propaganda. And so my job 
uh, Professor Yamada Taylor's job and Professor E. Patrick Johnson's job and the 650 African-American studies faculty and their allies who have written a letter in protest to what is going on. It's our job to actually tell the fullest history and account of the country we actually live in from the past to the present. That's our job. And so it is the job of places like the College Board who purport to be in a position to develop curriculum to teach students based on what scholars and scholarship says. It's their job to push back against propaganda. And unfortunately, that's not what has happened here. Can you tell us, uh, Professor Muhammad, about what the College Board is? I mean, uh, the College Board makes the SATs and the PSATs. Increasingly, they're being made optional all over the country. People don't usually think of these—this is—I mean, it's a large corporation that makes a fortune off of this. But now that revenue is threatened. And they also then have these AP courses. Uh, and if they see that the political climate in this country is going to be banning courses, are they caving to this pressure for their own financial reasons? Again, we as scholars have to ask these questions. You as a journalist have to ask these questions. The College Board doesn't have to answer those questions. <laughs> they are an independent entity. Now, just a clarification, they are a 501c3, which means they are not a private corporation. They're a nonprofit. They get they get literally um, tax breaks for what they do. They generate a tremendous amount of revenue, a um, billion dollars based on a year. Half of, I'm sorry. A, a, a billion year. dollars yeah. a year. Yeah, half a million of that comes from the distribution of the AP system, and a, another portion of it comes from their SAT, and then they have these pipeline uh, programs. So it is a gigantic entity. The president of the College Board in 2020, according to the public 990, made $2.5 million, the CEO, David Coleman, which is twice the salary, of, the best I know, of the current Harvard president. So it is not an insignificant entity and its concerns about its own well-being financially have to be considered in light of these controversies. And what about how this leads, not just the elite AP courses, but to what teachers and professors teach all over this country and their fears. For example, uh, in Manatee County, Florida, um, teachers have taken to covering up or removing books from their class libraries after a new law prohibiting classroom material that hasn't been vetted and approved by so-called certified media specialists went into effect. Teachers found in violation of these guidelines face felony charges, could go to prison, and so, uh, not understanding what this is about, wouldn't there be massive self-censorship beforehand not to risk becoming uh, criminalized? Absolutely. This is why what Florida Governor DeSantis is doing is actually shaping national educational standards. This is no longer just about the Stop Woke Act that affects what happens in Florida or in the case where he has now taken over one of the colleges and, and literally banned any notion of diversity and inclusion, which is now extending to the bureaucracies of the university. I mean, the notion of a chilling effect and self-censorship on what teachers think they might be able to teach is, is only now being tested. Florida is a laboratory of fascism at this point. Uh, I work at the Harvard Kennedy School, and we talk a lot about laboratories of democracy. We talk about city innovation. 
Well, Governor DeSantis is now ground zero for paving the way for the extension of the elimination of any notion that we live in an open society where we get to debate ideas freely. And I want to remind people that a, an AP course is designed to allow students to get college credit. When he and his minions say, well, this is about high school students, well, AP courses are really not about high school students. It's about them not having to read Kianga Yamada Taylor or E. Patrick Johnson in college because they've already read them in high school. So the impact on this is national in scope, and we have to consider that in light of DeSantis's own plans. Can you talk about the letter that you wrote, along with 650 African-American department faculty members, condemning efforts to critique and curtail this new AP course, the significance of this, uh, Professor Muhammad? Sure. Well, I want to clarify, it's African-American studies faculty, and we are represented by Black people, white people, Latinx people, uh, Asian people, everybody. So everyone is included in that letter. What I want to say is we're running out of people in our field who can support this, including people in the letter who are listed in the AP curriculum for credit for participating in the process. It's becoming less tenable for the college board to claim that their 300 faculty have weighed in on this when this number keeps growing and some of the same people they cite as supporting it have signed this letter. Professor Yamada Taylor has already said strange credulity. I mean, we're beyond straining credulity. This doesn't add up numerically because what I am reading when I'm reading the press reports, when I am reading the releases by the College Board, I'm seeing this gesture to this universe of people but in fact, I'm learning that a small, much smaller number of players participate in the actual crafting of the curriculum. I'm not surprised that the College Board is using this as a communication strategy, rolling out people like my colleague Henry, Henry Louis Gates to stand in for what they've done. But Henry Louis Gates never appears in any credits in the original curriculum. He only magically appears later on and then as a spokesperson for this. So what our letter attempted to do was to say this what is happening here in the College Board's apparent appeasement suggests to us that Ron DeSantis is now fundamentally attacking, attacking the most sacrosanct principles of an educational system, of an open society, and a frontal assault on academic freedom and democracy. And let's be clear, of course, he's not just Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. He's clearly a presidential aspirant and will shape the discourse um, in 2024, if in fact he runs. Um, but clearly thinking that his positions now, um, he is trying to shape them to appeal to the entire country. Which brings me back to E. Patrick Johnson, um, Dean Johnson. That's right. Dean of the School of Communication at Northwestern University, pioneer in the formation of black sexuality studies as a field of scholarship. Can you share a message to future AP students? Can you talk about the focus of your work and why you think it's important for students to learn about black queer studies? Absolutely. You know, one of the things, going back to something that uh, Professor Taylor says, you know, 
the suggestion that uh, black history stops at, in 1963 or even 1968 is ludicrous. You know, one of the um, progenitors of what we now think of uh, as black queer studies is James Baldwin, who's one of the most important thinkers of the uh, 21st century. Um, to leave someone out of the history uh, of African-American history like James Baldwin is absurd um, because he was not only just a uh, a fiction writer, a nonfiction writer, he was an activist, and he was also queer. And his thinking uh, has shaped, uh, along with many others, Audre Lorde, um, what we now think of as uh, black queer studies. And so you can't parse out uh, the the intellectual uh, history of, of black studies uh, without these important thinkers. So that's why it's important for students uh, who are in high school to be exposed to these thinkers and also to, to understand the historical context out of which they emerge, even if they in their time weren't um, uh, using the language that we use now, i.e. queer, um, they, they were engaged in conversations and questions around sexuality as it pertains to black people. And sexuality as a question, as a, as a uh, mode of thought, also applies to the period of slavery and thereafter. So, I mean, as black people, we are sexual beings. And so that's why it's important to understand the role that sexuality plays in the history of black people. If you think about, for instance, uh, the institution of slavery and how uh, sexuality was vital to sustaining uh, that institution in terms of using black women's bodies uh, as breeders uh, or using black men's bodies as, as uh, breeders uh, to maintain slavery as an institution, it's ludicrous to think uh, or to say or espouse that sexuality is not important uh, when we talk about black history. And the other thing I'll say is... Uh, this uh, culture war that we're experiencing now is not the same culture war that we're experiencing in the 1980s. And the difference is, is social media. Um, the, the youth and young people uh, today were born with the uh, access of the world in their pocket through a cell phone. So even if you take out uh, the Black Lives uh, Matter movement from this course, even if you take out uh, my work and uh, others' work, um, people ha can have access to it. Um, so we have to be steadfast. We have to uh, be uh, creative, as we always have, to make sure that our young people understand the, 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 the totality of black history, which includes the history of black sexuality. Um, uh, Kianga Yamada-Taylor, we're going to end with you. Uh, February 1st was uh, a beginning and an end. Um, it's the beginning of Black History Month. It was the funeral of Tyree Nichols. Um, if you can wrap up this discussion by talking about what's happening today in this country, 
another attack on the AP curriculum is talking about police violence um, and what people have to understand about where we stand today in this country? I think one of the reasons why the history I mean, and this is an African-American studies course, but why black history is, is so important uh, right now is because it speaks to uh, the longevity of both the uh, condition of, of, of black people in this country, one of oppression and marginalization, uh, but it also speaks to the longe longevity of political struggle. And that is part of what is so appalling, really, about the decision of the, the, the college board and caving in um, to the right wing on this, whether it was DeSantis or whether it was the general atmosphere, uh, which is to say that black people were brought to this country uh, as slaves. And then when slavery ended, there was another 100 years of legal subjugation. So it is entirely consistent that uh, the entirety of black letters would be consumed with questions of struggle, with questions of activism, with questions of, of, of politics. Um, but also as part of that uh, are questions about the American project itself, which is really what many of these people um, are, are afraid of. And without that history, we don't understand the intensity of the fury of protest at police brutality. We think that the demands to defund the police or the questioning about the American prison system or even the suggestion uh, that we don't have prisons, that we not have prisons, uh, is impetuous, just came up, uh, uh, is a recent phenomenon. No, this comes from a long history of police repression, a long history of uh, uh, judicial misconduct. And that is one of the reasons why this field of inquiry is so incredibly important. You cannot understand the link between uh, uh, crime and the black community unless you read Khalil Muhammad's book, Condemnation of Blackness, the best book ever written on the topic. You can't understand so much of black life today unless you engage with the field of, of, of African-American uh, history, which is why this is not just some isolated, isolated uh, uh, scholastic question, but that it has deep political uh, uh, implications. Black history is about understanding the contemporary moment, not just for black people, but for the nation uh, uh, as a whole. And that is why this is completely dangerous um, and why we have to resist these efforts to attenuate our understanding uh, uh, of this history instead of broadening it and deepening it. Kianga Yamada-Taylor, we want to thank you for being with us, professor of African-American studies at Northwestern University. E. Patrick Johnson, dean of the School of Communication at Northwestern University. And Khalil Gibran Mohammed, professor of history, race and public policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. We thank you all so much for this important discussion. Coming up, we speak to an asylum seeker here in New York who's just been evicted from a hotel where he was staying along with hundreds of other migrants. Now the city moving them to a remote terminal in Red Hook, Brooklyn. Stay with us. À midi. Quelle heure est-il? Il est midi. C'est l'heure de déjeuner. Qu'est-ce qu'il y a à manger? Des saucisses. Écoutez et répétez. À midi.
À midi. À midi. Quelle heure est-il Quelle heure Quelle heure est-il Est-il Transmitting live from Mars by De La Soul. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman. We end today's show here in New York City, where police dismantled an encampment of asylum seekers outside Manhattan's Watson Hotel Wednesday night, threatening to arrest anyone who didn't leave. Videos show sanitation workers throwing suitcases into a dumpster as police surrounded the sidewalk. The asylum seekers, who were recently evicted from the hotel near Columbus Circle, were protesting the city's plan to house them in a thousand-bed facility in a remote terminal in Red Hook, Brooklyn. People staying at the facility told the group South Bronx Mutual Aid they have to, had to endure inhumane conditions, including extreme cold. At a press conference Wednesday, New York City Mayor Eric Adams questioned whether the asylum seekers camping on the sidewalk outside the Watson Hotel were actually migrants. And uh, I'm not even sure they're migrants. Uh, there are some agitators that uh, just really, I think, is doing a disservice to the migrants and doing a disservice to the children and families we're moving Question. into the hotels. Well, on Wednesday, before city officials cleared the encampment of asylum seekers, Democracy Now!'s Juan Gonzalez and I spoke to a Venezuelan asylum seeker named Ruben, who came into a television studio not far from the Watson Hotel to share his story. Juan interviewed Ruben in Spanish, and we've added voiceovers in English for both of them. Ruben was joined by Desiree Joy Frias, a community organizer with South Bronx Mutual Aid, and I began by asking her to respond to Mayor Adams' remarks. That's correct. So those are the quotes uh, that they are paid actors, the migrants outside the Watson, and that the mutual aid organizers, collectives, neighbors that are dropping by with, with home-cooked food are, are outside agitators. Um, we're New Yorkers. I'm born and raised here. I'm the child of migrants. Um, why do I do this work? Why do I step away from my three-year-old um, and my husband from my warm home to come out and do mutual aid work? Um, it's because the only people providing care to these people right now is community. Um, and will we continue to do it until we don't have to do that work anymore? Absolutely. But should we also have the, the, the preliminary budget 2024 that, that Eric Adams has put together adjusted so that it stops cutting funding to social services, to libraries, and stops funneling billions of dollars to the seventh largest army in the, in the world? Um, yeah, that would be really great, because um, the problems of, of, of housing are, are systemic and are not going to be resolved by moving single men out, putting families into the Watson. The hotel was never the final solution. The final solution is permanent housing for all New Yorkers, stable housing, whether you're born here, whether you're not born here. There should never be a second class of humans that are put into a different style shelter just because they're single men. And I'd like to ask Ruben, could you tell us a bit about how long ago did you come from Venezuela to the United States? And a bit of the history of the trip. The journey is so many miles from South America to the United States. Well, yes, it's a bit 
complicated uh, the situation, not just most of us Venezuelans, but also people from many other parts of Latin America. It is a very heavy journey. Many don't come from Venezuela, but live in places that are even further away than Venezuela. Crossing through the Darien Gap is a very heavy experience. It, uh, I think, was useful for me. I think it made me a stronger person. But for others, sadly, many were unable to get out alive. Others are still in the Darien jungle, trying to resolve their situation, fig trying to figure out how to get out of there. And then one must cross through sick seven more countries after coming out of the Darien jungle. Many people come without money. They go from bus to bus. Others are walking, and it is a very heavy journey. And when did you come to New York, and have you been able to get work to support yourself? I have come to the United States about three months ago. I've been in New York for about two and a half months, I think. The truth is, it's be, been a bit difficult for me in terms of work. For thus far, I don't have a work permit. And it's very tough to get work here in New York without a work permit. They will hire you for three hours or for two hours for a short period of time and they don't pay us all the same in terms of what they've paid me well it's really not been enough for anything I've not been able to get a stable job so far which is what I want which is what we all want to get a stable job and be able to stay but to get a job where we work for three days and then we're fired and then where we work for five days and we get dismissed once again and this because we don't have a work permit. Oh. Ruben, I wanted to ask how old you are. Tengo 22 años. I'm 22 years old. And can you describe what happened on Sunday at the Watson? Tell us when you were evicted, what you were told. And then can you talk about the tour that the commissioner, New York City Commissioner Castro, took you and other asylum seekers on of this Brooklyn terminal facility where they want to put you now? Well, it was somewhat desperate news. They really should have given us more lead time for us to be able to get ourselves situated and to just know what that place is like so that each person would know what they would do, would have thought things through. But it was news that we got just one week ahead of time. And so for us, for many of us who don't have work, it gets complicated because we don't know or don't have anywhere to go, don't have money to rent a place. Others, the majority, have been able to get work in Manhattan. Now, sadly, they have to be transferred to Brooklyn. Many are going to have to give up their jobs. Many of us lost our jobs once again. We're in the street once again, starting from scratch. And uh, yesterday, yes, I went with the commissioner, and he took us to Brooklyn, and we... He showed us around to show us how, how everything is at this, what the situation is like there, what our decision was. And for my part, well, it's not 
that we can't just sleep anywhere. The only thing is we want to be treated like human beings, a place where we can stay. It doesn't matter if they put 20 of us or 30 of us there, but so long as we can sleep comfortably, not in the conditions that are in Brooklyn. In the bathrooms are not in very good shape. Some of the bathrooms are on the in, are inside, others on the outside where the showers are. He said he was going to put a soccer field uh, there. It's uh, not that we... Uh, don't want recreation, but we've come to the United States to work. I want to ask you, the city says it's going to use the hotel for families instead of single men. Well, and obviously they're dealing with hundreds and hundreds of people. More than 4,000 have come in the last year. How do you think that the city is responding to this crisis? On the one hand, we cannot demand anything because we've come here to work. We have to thank God and thank uh, thanks to the United States and to New Yorkers who are giving us their support and who have given us the opportunity in, however it might be, but have given us support in terms of being able to stay. People have offered food. Now, in terms of food, we really don't demand any big deal in terms of food, but if I'm going to give someone else food, then I need to make sure that that food is healthy, that it's in proper condition. If it's not, then to avoid any problems, it might be best to just throw it out. In many, uh, this has happened in many cases, they really should have taken note of it. And as for the Watson, they just uh, evicted us because there were rooms there for two people. Now, for my own part, one sees there's children and families coming in, but two men in one room, well, we were like families as well. We are human beings. And the fact that it's two of us men doesn't mean we can't be a family as well. We can be a family as well. And there were many uh, things that happened at the hotel. And everything was pretty much at peace. I don't know why they made this uh, decision to send us to that place at this time. They really should have sought another place. It doesn't matter in terms of the exact conditions, but somewhere at least where it wouldn't be so cold. They placed us by a lake during the cold part of the year. Part of our interview this week with Ruben, an asylum seeker evicted from a New York City hotel, and Desiree Joy Frias, a community organizer with South Bronx Mutual Aid. To watch the full interview and to hear about Ruben's journey from Venezuela through one, two, three, four, five, six, perhaps seven countries before he made it to the U.S.-Mexico uh, the border and then made his way to New York, go to Democracy Now! Org. Oh, and a very happy birthday to Hugh Grant. Democracy Now! produced with Renee Fels, Mike Burke, Dina Guzder, Messiah Rhodes, Nermeen Sheikh, Maria Tarasena, Tammy Warren, Afterina Nadura, Sam Alkoff, Tamari Astujo, John Hamilton. I'm Amy